Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. If you are visiting with us, you're not necessarily a regular part of Gateway Bible Church. We want to welcome you. Uh, I know we have people that are tuning in from all across the country. We have people from across the world in places that, that we weren't realizing that people were connecting with us from. And uh, it's a real honor to be able to come to you today. Of course, the, the, the primary audience that, that we have or that I have is uh, the family that God has put under my shepherding care. And uh, Gateway, it's just so good to be able to minister the Word to you this morning. Well, let's look at Exodus chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, and also um, it will be on the screen, but to have your Bibles ready will be beneficial. So Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my, by my name, the Lord did not make himself known to them. Um, sorry, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we are humbled by the fact that you would reveal yourself to us. But Lord, even more than that, you have revealed yourself to us in a way that is recorded where we can read it and we can meditate on it and we can seek to understand you better and, Lord, know how you think and how you function and how you interact with us. Lord, what a privilege that is. And so, Lord, as we listen to you this morning, as your word goes into our hearts, Lord, to affect us, may we just count it a real privilege, Lord, that you desire to commune with us. And, Lord, now as we study... Lord, would you, um, would you help me as your mouthpiece to be your messenger, Lord, to, to, to be the vehicle through which your word comes forth? Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us by your spirit and because of Jesus Christ? We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, friends, um, last time we were in Exodus, we were in chapter 5, and if you remember the story there, Moses begins this commission from God, and he goes to Pharaoh just like he was told, and he gives Pharaoh the message to let his people go. 
But of course, Pharaoh will not let his people go. And as a result of Moses and Aaron's encounter with Moses, things don't get better, they get worse and worse and worse. And in particular, worse for the Hebrew slaves. They're forced to to forage for straw initially, uh, because it wasn't being provided um, by the Egyptians in order to make the bricks. Then they're forced to make the bricks without straw while under the oppressive hand of the taskmasters. And so as a result, the people turn on Moses saying, Moses, you and your message from God has made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. God will surely judge you for what you have done to us. And friends, there we learned that there will be times when faithfulness to God doesn't guarantee success, but does, at times, only make matters worse. And Moses goes to God then, at the end of chapter 5, in great discouragement. We see that in verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Clearly, friends, Moses is discouraged. He's getting hammered from Pharaoh, who won't listen to the word of the Lord. He's getting hammered by his own people who don't believe that there's any need for the word of the Lord, because if it is spoken, it's just going to cause more harm to them. And he's questioning his ministry and God's wisdom in choosing him for this task. And so as we enter into our text, there there is a context to what God is saying. And what God now is going to be doing is he is going to be giving counsel, in particular for Moses, who's overcome with discouragement in his service for him. And for us, as we approach this, what we can learn from this is counsel for us as we are overcome with discouragement in serving the Lord. So God here is seeking to encourage Moses with what he says, but Moses must embrace these encouragements. Have you ever found yourself saying something like what Moses is saying here? God, why would you allow this to happen? God, why would you do this? Why can't I fall asleep? Why won't the baby be quiet? You know I'm exhausted. Why haven't you brought about Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright for me to marry? Why does my marriage have to be so difficult? I thought this was supposed to be a fantastic season of life. Why haven't my children grown up to serve you, Lord? Why don't you take this ongoing temptation that I'm struggling with, why don't you take it away from me? Why does life always have to be so hard? And friends, discouragement can come on quickly. And if we're not careful, it will sink its teeth into us and take us under. Now friends, as converted sinners, We cannot live our lives in a passive way. And what I mean by that is that God will have to somehow get me out of my discouragement. We must be active by digging our roots deep into the gospel, 
In other words, you and I must do something. We must believe something. We must act on something. We must embrace something. We must obey something. In our Christian walk, God gives us answers and directions for a way out, but we must listen, we must act, obey, and follow. So God here comes to Moses with counsel, and Moses acts. His acts are not explicit in the text, but they are implicit. But they are there, and they are there for us to see and to learn. Discouragement, friends, must not be allowed to fester, or it will lead to despondency, despair, and finally, depression. And this move from discouragement to despondency, despair, and depression can be pictured as a a downward spiral. And friends, if we are on the, the downward spiral, there is a sense in which we need to begin to climb up. Certainly, God is there to help us but He is there to help us with instructions and guidance about how then to get back up this spiral, to climb up and out of that spiral. How? By acting, by believing, by embracing, by doing, by fighting your way out of your mindset. So, what can I do in a practical way to fight my way out of my discouragement? Well, that's the question of this text. That's what's happening in this text. That's why God is now speaking to Moses in the way that he's speaking. And this passage will draw our attention then to three commitments we must make. And these commitments basically fall uh, this way. We must be committed to take time to see God favorably. Secondly, to know God fully. And third, to serve God faithfully. Let's think first of all then about taking time to see God favorably. Let's read verse 1, and let's kind of settle in on what it is saying. But the Lord said to Moses, again, this is right after Moses has been asking questions and his discouragement is kind of spewing out of his mouth. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Now, friends, there's some things that we need to see here. This is language that is often used to describe what God does. But he's not describing so much what he is doing. He's describing what he is now creating, or he is moving Pharaoh to do. And Pharaoh is going to do these things because he wants to. With Pharaoh's strong hand, he will send them out. With his strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. So Moses is looking ahead to what God now is promising, specifically how God was going to work his will through Pharaoh. This same Pharaoh who says, I won't let the people go, will not only let the people go, but will send them out. He'll drive them out with his strong hand. Friends, this is a bold statement by God. He's not just saying Pharaoh will finally surrender to the pressure and let you go. No, he's saying Pharaoh will do all he can to get rid of you. This Pharaoh who is now saying, I will not let you go, 
and who has tightened the screws of persecution will be changing his tune. Just you wait and see, Moses. And of course, God is right. It's clear that God is right. And Moses hangs in there to see what Yahweh will do. You see, God is prophesying here about what will happen after the 10th plague, where every firstborn in Egypt dies. And here's what happens at the end of the 10th plague. We find that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 30 and 32. Follow along as I read. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Make me happy by your departure. Go. That's not what Pharaoh is saying in chapter 5. But in chapter 10, that is exactly what we find, or chapter 12, I should say, that is exactly what we're going to find Pharaoh saying. And so what's happening here, in one sense, you've maybe heard the expression, begin with the end in mind. God is giving Moses a picture of a, of, of a future reality, the certainty of how God was going to get them out of Israel. And he's saying, listen, you will see what I'm going to do. That must be an encouragement to Moses. We're going to find out that it is. But Moses looked ahead to what God promised. Now, as we interact with this, we are privileged because we're, we're far beyond that. And so we look back and ahead to what God has promised. We look back on what God has promised and fulfilled page after page of God's Word is filled with examples of how God has kept His Word and provided for His people. You know this, but let me just highlight just a number of these things. Getting Israel through the Red Sea, providing food in the wilderness, defeating the enemies in the Promised Land, the provision of Naomi and Ruth, the birth of Samuel, the identification and anointing of David, the provision of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace the rebuilding of Jerusalem under Nehemiah's leadership, the coming of Jesus as a baby, the training of the 12 disciples, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the spread of the gospel by the hand of the apostles. These are just a, a short list, friends, of the ways that God has fulfilled His promises to His people. But we can also look back at how God has worked His plan through pagan, unbelieving leaders. Certainly Pharaoh is the one that, you know, we're thinking of right away. But then there's Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus in the story of Esther. Then there's Darius in the story of Daniel or Cyrus in the time of Nehemiah. And there's Pilate and Herod in the gospel accounts. God uses pagan leaders to accomplish his purposes. They think they're doing what they want to do, but we know that God turns the heart of kings. He is the one who's in control of those things. And friends, there's many more. But the point is that one of the things that helps us out of our despondency and our depression is to remember and to reflect on what God has done in the past. 
that reminds us of God's mighty power and sovereign plan so that we can think about that He is still going to do that in the future. And friends, when we're discouraged, we can't stop seeing things, or we can stop seeing things as they really are. We become numb to the world around us. We just want to climb into a hole and to give up. That's how discouragement whispers to us. But the place we must begin is to see God in a fresh way once again, to be refreshed by His magnificence and His power. And notice that God is responding to Moses with tenderness and assurance. He's not scolding him. He's encouraging him. And this is kind of a shock to the system. If you're reading this, normally you would expect, Moses, you failed again. God's going to slap you silly. But that's not what God does. And friends, to us, we have the same assurance. We have the record of God's Word to see what God has done, to reflect and to rest on the evidence that God is good and active in carrying out His plans. And secondly, we then look forward to God's promises being fulfilled. Now, based on those fulfillments, we embrace the promises that God gives us to trust that they will come true, just as God came true with Israel in the past. So the word of the Lord will not return void. The gospel will go out, and it will do its work. If I plant, someone else may water, but ultimately God is the one who's accomplishing the conversion or the salvation, the increase. And heaven is our hope. Heaven is our certainty. And we could go again down a list of things that are promises to us, but our ability to grab a hold of them and to believe them is to find our strength in what God has already revealed about Himself through His people, that He is a mighty God who is willing to take care of His people and to show His mighty power and hand for them. It's a wonderful encouragement, friend. And the emphasis here is that we need to take time to see God favorably. In other words, to see His favor shown throughout the pages of God's Word. Secondly, and this is a longer section, but we need to take time to know God fully. We've seen God favorably. Now, in verses 2 through 8, we need to know God fully. And I get that from verses 3 and verses 7. So let's read each of them and interact with those a little bit, and we can see what is happening in this, in this section. God says, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So God appeared to the patriarchs, but not in the way that he had revealed himself to Moses. There was something deeper, something fuller about what God is revealing about Himself. Then in verse 7, notice what it says. He says, I will take you to be my people. So God is speaking to God's people through Moses here. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that's Yahweh again, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So what God is saying to Moses is about knowledge of God. Now look again at verse 3, and notice what God is saying. I reveal myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. That's the name El 
Shaddai, the omnipotent one, the powerful one. So he's saying about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they knew me, but that they knew me more as a powerful God. But by my name, Yahweh, Lord, capital L, uh, capitals there, L-O-R-D, that's the I am that I am, they did not know me. Now they did, they did communicate to God using that, but God did not reveal himself like he revealed himself to Moses, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now friends, with Moses, he revealed himself in a deeper, more personal way. And he's going to do that also, and he has done that, in a deeper, more personal way to his people. Now friends, hear this. It is insufficient to know God merely as a powerful God. We must also know him as a personal God. Do you know God that way? As a personal God? Or are we much more likely to see God as powerful? Friends, that, that's just that's natural for us. When we think about God, we think about gods, if you want to put it that way. We think of power. We think of someone who, who is exercising power. And that is true about the one true God, but that is not the only truth about the one true God. What God wants us to do here is He wants us to be growing in our knowledge of Him. And so that happens over time. It happens by experience. It happens by God revealing Himself more and more, day by day, to you and to me. Are you growing in Him more? So there's this, there's this sense then of emphasis on the knowledge of God and this comparison between God Almighty and the Lord. Now imagine if, uh, if we were meeting in church this morning and you were on your way to church, driving down the road, on your way, and, as you, and you were pulled over by a police officer because you didn't quite stop completely at a stop sign. Of course, that would never happen to you, I understand that. And the officer comes to your car and asks for your driver's license. And as you give him your driver's license, you notice his uniform. It's the uniform of a police officer. The uniform says, I am authority. I have a title. I am in a position of authority. Now, you give him your license, but as you give him your license, you also notice that on his chest is his name. It says, Officer Martinez. So he's not just a police officer, he has a name, Officer Martinez. But what you don't know about this man is that he's married. He has two children, a boy who's six and a daughter who's three. And his father is a Vietnam vet who is struggling with cancer and his mother has worked as a nurse much of her life. And when Officer Martinez is off duty, he's helping out as a soccer coach for his son's soccer team. And he guides his family in God's Word and attends church with his family when he's not out serving the community as a police officer. Now here you are sitting in the car, you're angry about your circumstances and everything in it wants you to take it out on this officer. And you see before you a person of power and authority. What you don't see is that there is more to this man than his authority and power. 
You don't see him personally. You don't know the passion of his heart. You don't know the character and his convictions. You don't know his parents, his wife, or his children. You don't know the, the lives he saved or impacted in a positive way. You don't know about the medal he received for, for going above and beyond the call of duty to protect the lives of others. No, you know his position, his title, and his authority, but you don't know the real man behind the uniform. Now, do you know your teachers that way? What about your doctor, your chiropractor, your dentist, your postal worker, or your mechanic? Do you just know them by their title, by their name, or do you know them personally? What about your parents? Do you know that they love you more than you can ever imagine? Do you know that they have lived life? They've had experiences just like you're having experiences now? that they're actually quite smart, even though you might think they're old fuddy-duddies? Do you know them? I remember when I was in seminary, coming home for Christmas, and I was talking to my mother about the difficulty of the classes that I was taking. Some of them were much more difficult than others. And so I was just saying, oh, my Greek class, it's just it's so difficult. It's so much to remember, and this is so new because I really hadn't taken language as much before. And you know what she said to me? She said, well, if you need some help, I took Greek and Hebrew when I was in Bible college. It's like, what? <laughs> I never knew that about my mom. Um, here I am. My mom all this time has been an ancient language scholar, but all she's been doing is washing dishes and going to work and all this kind of stuff. See, there's, there's often things that we don't know. What about your children? Do you know what they love, what their talents are? Do you know how God is shaping their lives? Or are you pushing them to do and be what you want them to be regardless? Do you even care to know them deeply? Or are you just wanting them to obey you? How about your coworkers, your neighbors, your pastors? Do you know them beyond their title or position? What about your spouse? Are you still getting to know them? Now, this week I took a box to be dropped off at the UPS store in Castro Valley. And when I walked up to the counter, I was trying to be as friendly as I could in the context of, of this pandemic. And I placed the, the box on the scale and greeted uh, uh, the lady behind the counter saying, how are you doing today? To which she responded, I'm having a hot flash right now. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, that's a lot of personal information to give someone that you have never met before in your life, right? Um, so friends, th there is this thing that's happening that, that, that God is doing. He is making himself known. That's what's happening here with Moses, God is saying, your ancestors knew me, but I didn't reveal myself to them in the same way that I'm revealing myself to you. I'm not just God Almighty. I am the Lord. I am who I am. That's what God is getting at. Yes, I'm God Almighty, but I'm much more than that. I am the covenant God who is committed to his people, Israel. And there's so much more for you to know about me and I'm revealing myself to you and the people. I am the Lord. Now you notice that expression 
in these verses from 2 to 8. I am the Lord. We find it in verse 2, we find it in verse 6, and we find it in verse 8. And it's like God is, is bookending what he's saying here with these statements. You have it in the front, I am the Lord. Now, Moses, here's something I have for you. Then he says in verse 6, I am the Lord. And then he speaks to, to Moses saying, tell the, the people of Israel, this is what I'm saying. And at the end, he says, I am the Lord. He's saying, you better listen to me. This is important. I'm speaking to you as your God. Hear what I have to say. So this is really emphatic. What God will say is similar to what God said to Moses in chapter 3, where Moses is at the burning bush. But Moses was in the wilderness then, and Moses now is in Egypt, in the thick of the interaction with both the Hebrew people and the Egyptian king. And he will be reminded once again of the promises of God. Is this just kind of empty repetition? Is this, is this because you know, Moses is just such a, uh, he's, he's such a failure? He just, he just doesn't get it. I mean, why does God have to keep repeating himself? I think we can be helped by what Philip Ryken says here. He says, it should not surprise us that Moses needed to recall, or even that he gave God some lame excuse on two different occasions. God's servants often need to learn the same lesson twice or more. This is one of the reasons that there's so much repetition in Exodus. If we learn everything God wanted to teach us the first time, He wouldn't need to repeat Himself. But the sad truth is that we are slow to understand, slow to believe, and slow to obey. And God here comes, friends, in a gentleness to remind and to help and to encourage Moses in the thick of what he's doing to stay on task, to keep trusting in what he said, and so he reminds him. So when you and I are ready to give up and we offer those typical lame excuses, things that usually happen in our head, things like, I don't have time for this, I'm not good at this, I don't have the abilities to or, or to the right skills to do this, I just can't do it. God responds to each of those statements by saying, hold on, I'm the Lord. <laughs> I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. It's, it's, it's a trump card, okay? It, it's a way to say, you can't use that excuse. So he's saying, I am the Lord. And then what we find in this text, which I think is really, really helpful, is we find that in verses 2 through 8, we have a beautiful portrait of the gospel, it's a picture of salvation. Salvation is God's work in a person whereby he regenerates them through faith and repentance. But the gospel is not just for salvation. It's also for sanctification. About a previous ministry, I was told that there were rumblings among the congregation, and people were saying something like this. Why is Pastor Rod preaching about the gospel so much? I mean, he preached about it last week. Why is he bringing it up again and again? We know the gospel. We've heard the gospel. We are believers. We don't need the gospel. What we need is something practical to help us live. Now, they were expressing a common but faulty understanding that the gospel is just for salvation but it doesn't reflect the ongoing 
teaching of God's Word. And friends, that kind of language is evidence that they did not understand the gospel. And I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm just questioning their, their understanding, the right understanding of how the gospel is at work. Because the gospel is not just for salvation. It is the fuel and the framework for our ongoing sanctification, our ongoing growth in Christlikeness, our ongoing discipleship. We cannot grow in the Lord without the outworking of the gospel in our lives. So the attitude presented by these sentiments gives evidence that they only understood the gospel as the entrance requirements to becoming a Christian. But once that has taken place, the gospel for them is somewhat unimportant unless you're sharing the gospel for someone who needs to get saved. For friends, the gospel, like in the illustration I gave, um, can, view, uh, can be viewed simply or merely as a starting port. Or we might want to say this, it's, it's like a harbor from which you sail the seas of life. And it's a harbor that you never really go back to again. But friends, it might be better than to understand the gospel as soil that is rich and fertile. So like up on the screen it says, the gospel is not a harbor from which we sail the seas, but rich, fertile soil into which we plant our roots. And the, uh, you are the seed planted in the soil, and when you begin to live, you put down roots and shoots, you sink those roots and shoots ever more deeply into the gospel so that as you grow, you derive more and more nourishment from the good news of the gospel. You don't grow past it, you don't grow out of it, but you grow down into it. Friends, the gospel is necessary for living the Christian life. So the gospel is not just the start of our Christian life. We need the gospel to sustain and to grow in our Christian life. And in our text, God will first address Moses to talk about what he's already done in the past. Then he will address Israel through Moses talk about what he will be doing in the future. So let's think now about the specifics of what God is revealing here. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. In this first section, verses 2 through 5, we have God really coming to us in two ways. First of all, he reveals himself. That's what we just read. We've taken some time to study that, but it is God who pursued Abraham, called him, and promised him that, that he would make his descendants a great nation. And God continued his promise and revelation of himself to Isaac and Jacob, and now ultimately to Moses, and it continues on. It is God who desires to make himself known. And he's still doing that, friends. It is his delight to make himself known. So the first thing is he revealed himself to Moses. Secondly, God covenanted himself. That's just verses 4 through 5. And there's three parts to that covenant. Notice at verse 4, the establishment of his covenant. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. In other words, God had a plan. And he's following that plan. Have you ever ridden in a car with someone? They're driving, you're in the passenger seat, 
but that person driving really doesn't have a plan. They, they know where they're supposed to go, but they haven't figured out exactly how they're going to get there yet. It can be really, really frustrating. This past year, when I went to Bolivia, one of the things that we did is we flew from uh, Santa Cruz up to La Paz. And when we got to La Paz, we were picked up by a gentleman um, in, in the, the airport, which is actually up on the top in El Alto. And you've got to drive your way down into the valley where there is La Paz. But this man had never been to the airport before. And so he was seeking to get us from the airport to, um, to La Paz uh, using kind of an online you know, map guide type thing. And we were going all over the place. We were cutting through the heart of the city. We were coming to dead ends. We were going up these really, really steep roads and, and finding that the car couldn't even get up the hill, so we had to back out and find another way to go. Then we, we came down a hill and we weren't able to go any further because it came to a cul-de-sac. It was all this stuff. So what, what should have taken half an hour took over an hour to get to um, the pastor's home. But friends, life isn't supposed to be like that, although that is the way it is. That might be how we function, but that's not how God functions. God's plan is not some confused um, activity that he's kind of coming up with on the moment. He knows what he's doing. He has purpose. He has direction, and he is working that plan, and you can be sure of it. He never makes a wrong turn. He never finds himself stuck in a dead end or a cul-de-sac. He has a plan, and he's working that plan. Not only has he established his covenant, but he's also heard the groaning of his people. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. Now, friends, to be truly heard is a longing we all have. When you're talking with a friend and he or she is looking you in the eye and reading your face and nodding as you speak, you have the assurance that, they're being, that you're being heard. When you go to the doctor because you're in pain and don't quite understand why, and the doctor just quickly gives you a diagnosis and, and, and writes a prescription, you don't feel like you've been heard. They haven't taken time to, to start to interact with you. You prefer to go to a doctor who hears your explanation of your symptoms and follows up by asking more and more questions. And, and even those questions and the answers are followed up by more and more questions because they, they really want to hear so they can give a right solution. And in a day and age when we have phones and all sorts of, of you know, equipment like that available to us, it is hard to actually talk to someone and have their full attention. But friends, this is what God is saying. He listens. He pays attention. He truly hears. All of His being is attentive to those who are His. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? He's a covenant God who hears. But he is also a covenant God who remembers his covenant. He says, and I have remembered my covenant. That's verse 5. See, God never forgets. God cannot forget. It would be a smack against his character to forget. Why? Because to forget is passive. You don't know when you forget something. That's the whole point of it. What we know is that God remembers. That is active. That is a, a, a choice. That is his will being active. 
He will always remember because God cannot forget. He is committed to remember His covenant. And to remember His covenant is to say what He promised in the past is true and it remains true. Nothing has changed, nor will it. So God is not so distant or so helpless or so busy or so small. He's not indifferent or surprised by our suffering. He's not bothered by our cries for help, kind of like a a father who's finally sat down to watch a football game and hears the child crying in the bedroom and says, why can't I just have some peace and once in a while just so I can do something I want to enjoy doing? That's not God at all. God listens. He remembers. He cares. He's committed to His people. Why? Because He is their covenant God. This is what God is saying to Moses. Now remember, God is seeking to encourage Moses by reminding him of who he is and what he has done in reaching out to Moses and his descendants. What has already taken place, what has already been promised. He's revealed himself and he's covenanted himself. Now he turns to say, all right, Moses, you say this to the people. This is what God promises now about the future. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel. Now, you'll notice that verses 6 to 8, that there are seven I will statements. Three in verse 6, two in verse 7, two in verse 8. And these statements reveal to Moses how God is going to save his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. This is, if you will, God's roadmap for his salvation, for his deliverance. And we can group these seven I will statements under four headings, liberty, redemption, adoption, and inheritance. So this roadmap for Moses is also a roadmap for our salvation. Let's look at what is said here. Let's begin with liberty. God will liberate us. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Salvation, friends, means being set free from bondage and a liberation from captivity. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28 and following, this is when Jesus is on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Um, this uh, This is what it says, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That word departure means exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And isn't interesting here, you have Moses and you have this Exodus language talking about what Jesus had to do in Jerusalem. So what is this departure or Exodus that they're talking about? Well, it's none other than the cross, friends. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate Exodus. It's the salvation to which the Exodus story points. Just listen to the following passages from the New Testament. They'll also be up on your screen. And from Jesus... Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 
freedom comes as a result of what happens on the cross. Then Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then John chapter 8 and verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You truly are free. So God will liberate us. Now, friends, there are different kinds of freedom, aren't there? There's constitutional freedom. We're hearing a lot about that in the news. The freedom of mobility. Legal freedom, economic freedom, physical freedom. But friends, there's, a, there, there's something more than those freedoms, something far more important than those freedoms. It is spiritual freedom. Even the ancient philosophers understood this. This is what Aristotle said. He who has overcome his fears is truly free. John Paul Sartre says, freedom is what we do with what is done to us. So there's kind of a theoretical freedom they're talking about there. And friends, the teaching of Scripture is that freedom, true freedom, can only be found in one place, and that is found in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Freedom and the cross go hand in hand. Deliverance by virtue of that sacrifice work together. Friends, it's a joyful truth. God sets sinners free what salvation is. Secondly, there's freedom, but there's also redemption. He says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God promises to liberate us. He promises now that He will redeem us. He will buy us back. A payment is necessary in order to provide that freedom. And again, the redemption that God is promising to the people of Israel is a faint glimmer of the brighter light that shines in Jesus Christ. Again, here are three verses from the New Testament to help us think this through. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It's Ephesians 1.7. Colossians 1.4, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So you have freedom through the blood, which is then our redemption. And this is what God is revealing. The means of our redemption was the shed blood of of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice on the cross. Now, we were by nature's slaves to sin, but God liberates us by purchasing our redemption by way of the cross. A price has been paid, and we are set free. That's why when Jesus is on the cross, He says to Talisai, it is finished. What He's meaning is it's been paid in full. It has been completed. So, friends, these two realities of our salvation are wonderful reminders to help us and to encourage us when we are discouraged. Third, not only that, it's amazing that God liberates us, isn't it? We are in awe that He would purchase our redemption with His blood, but it doesn't stop 
there. Not only does God set us free by redeeming us, but He takes it even further by adopting us into His family. He says in verse 7, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And again, as we turn to the New Testament, we see the same theme mentioned and connected to other themes that we've already looked at. Look, if you would, please, at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Or John 1, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. What kind of love is this? It's a love that isn't satisfied with setting us free. It's a love that is not satisfied with purchasing our freedom. It's a love that takes vile, wicked sinners who are full of their own pleasures, their own satisfaction, their own pursuits, and adopts them into His family. Friends, He cleans us, He forgives us of our sin, He sets us free, but He also calls us, He calls you, beloved son, beloved daughter. He calls us by name, and that's why Scripture says, we who are His call Him Abba, Father, Daddy. This is all part of adoption. So He, he liberates us. He redeems us. He adopts us. And the four, fourth thing is this. He will grant us or He will give us an inheritance. God promises that what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still on the cards. The land is your inheritance. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 7 helps us here. It's not there on the, uh, on the screen, but listen. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Or Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, did you get the progression there? A slave, freedom, redemption, adoption, fellow heirs with Christ. Friends, this is an amazing statement. Ponder it for a moment. We have an inheritance with Christ. The Apostle Peter tells us that we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Matthew records for us the Sermon on the Mount, which includes this well-known truth, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Apostle Paul, in his prayer, 
gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So here is the gospel, friends. Freedom, redemption, adoption, inheritance. But remember, again, what's the backdrop? What's the purpose? Why is God revealing all of this, not just to Moses, but to the people? What is He seeking to do? He is seeking to encourage them. He's seeking to help them out of their discouragement. God is saying, look, take time to know me fully. I've sought you. I've covenanted with you. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will adopt you. I will give you the land of promise. It's encouraging them with these words. These are wonderful truths, friends. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is, this is where a lot of the language of the New Testament gets its language. It's rooted in the Old Testament, brought into the New Testament, explained in particular in the epistles. Those are the, the sections of Scripture primarily that we worked in here just to, to walk through what's happening here and what God is saying to Moses, seeking to encourage him and seeking to encourage the people. So we've seen now the need to, to, to see God favorably. We, we've taken time now uh, to know God more fully, but now I want to just look at verse 9, and what I'm, what I'm seeing here in verse 9 is this. Let's read it. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, admittedly, this is not, this section, this verse is not giving Moses any instructions to see or to know, but it is Moses having heard God's reaffirmation of his commitment to his promises for him and for Israel. It is Moses then stepping out once again in a ministry role. So I'm putting it this way. Take time to serve God faithfully. He's speaking here to the people of Israel, having been encouraged by what God has said about, about what he was going to do with with Pharaoh, and having encouraged Moses by the specific word about what he has done in the past and what he is going to do in the gospel in the future, Moses now steps back into ministry. And what does he do? He is faithful to speak God's word to the people. Now, friends, again, Moses must feel the reality that faithfulness to God doesn't guarantee success, but it does honor the wishes of God. And it does reveal to us here why it's hard for people to listen to God's word at times. See, Moses does then get up and he goes back to work, so to speak. And even as he goes back to work, it is not successful. And we're told here the reason why it's not successful. Because the people are broken in spirit. They're experiencing harsh slavery. We've moved from the seven I wills of what God says to the I won'ts of Israel. But what's interesting here, again, they're not condemned for their statement or their struggle. There's a reality that they are enslaved to their slavery. Their very chains are what prevent them from hearing the cry of freedom. As they slaved away for Pharaoh, making bricks without straw, they lost 
any hope of being set free. Their spirits were broken so much so that they could not listen to the promise of deliverance. Yeah, all right, God says He promises, but I don't believe it. They wanted their bondage to be taken away before they would believe. And I wonder whether or not that's how you and I are functioning. If you do this, God, then I will believe. That is often how it is with people. They refuse the freedom of Christ because they're blinded by their own slavery. Now, friends, that's not Moses' fault. That's not the preacher's fault. That's not your fault as you share God's truth. No, friends, it is God who must intervene. It is God who must break the chains of sin. It is God who must act on the person's heart by His Holy Spirit. And so what I see here is that Moses then is encouraged to go out and to continue his ministry regardless of whether it's successful or not. He goes out and he speaks God's word. Now, friends, as we draw this to a close, I think what's helpful here is that we recognize that what we have here at the end is not your typical Hollywood ending, is it? Now, of course, the story's not over yet. But, you know, typically we're like, oh, yeah, God spoke, and boom, he did this, and wow, it was so incredibly powerful. But that's not how it is in reality. That's not what, what it's like when you're trying to, you know, discipline your children, and they, they're constantly causing trouble, and they won't listen to you and saying, God, I want to do this right, and I'm so discouraged. And you finally get your strength back to honor God with your behavior and your parenting, and you do everything right, and the kids continue to not do what you want them to do. You haven't failed. But you need to keep on doing what God wants you to do. Rather than say, it's enough, I can't do this anymore. Now see, Moses isn't all encouraged here at the end, walking into the sunset, having resolved the problems of his life. That's the Hollywood ending. Friends, living in the context of discouragement isn't a quick fix. It takes time. But I want to remind you to do are three things. They're very simple, just kind of a reflection of what we looked at today, but they might help you just focus your attention on some ways that you can respond in the midst of your discouragement. Number one, uh, look up. Look up. This is what Moses did. I mean, with all the things that were going on, he could have just thrown in the towel. He could have walked away, but he, he knew better to do that. He looked up to God. He brought his concerns, his cries, his heartaches, his burden, his uncertainty, his questioning. He brought all that to the right place. He turned to God, and we are to turn to God. We're to turn to Christ. And friends, do you know where to turn to? Or do you find yourself turning to other things because you're discouraged? Look up. Then, then, then look in. And by look in, I'm talking about look into what God has revealed in His Word about you specifically. And ways that He has proven Himself over and over and over again to be faithful to those who are discouraged, who are despondent, who are in despair, who are, uh, who are depressed, and how God ministers to them and how God helps them. 
meditate on His Word. Make it a habit, a longing, a source of strength. Now, friends, I, 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 I don't want you to walk away saying, all Pastor Rod is saying to someone who's discouraged is, read your Bible, pray every day. As if, you know, just read your Bible, a couple of verses, pray every day, that's going to solve it. What I am saying is this, read your Bible, pray every day. But not just kind of like check it off, commune with God. See yourself in the pages of God's Word by means of of a rightful application that the gospel is there for you to find help and source and strength. Meditate on His Word. Make it a habit, a longing, a source of strength for your day. Look up, look in, and then look out. And the whole point here of look out is to say, so many times when we are discouraged, we tend to retreat. We tend to, to want to hide. We, we, we tend to want to put ourselves in a closet. We don't want to interact with people. We want to do our own thing. And we're afraid to step out. And friends, one of the best things you can do is having spent time with God is to, to face those things that might discourage you, to fight through them. So look outside of yourself. Work hard. Do your job. Serve others. Face your challenge in God's way and, and do it with His new, fresh perspective in your heart. I want to draw your attention to a very well-known passage of Scripture, just to to tie this all together. Moses is discouraged. He turns to God. God helps him, and Moses then presses on. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's discouragement, right? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, friends, it may not have been the first thought when you came to this text that this is about discouragement. And it's easy to kind of just look at a passage out of outside of its context, but this is God working with Moses, working on Moses. And friends, the same is true for you and me. There's a context into which we are living, and God is continually at work helping you through your struggles. Whatever those discouragements might be, He is there at work. This isn't just about some cold understanding of the gospel. This is living and breathing and acting and interacting with the gospel. This is digging your roots deep down into the soil of the gospel, finding strength and nourishment for the day that God has given you. Friends, we need this. And we need to see God afresh, especially when we are discouraged. Lord, help us as we consider the kind and gentle way that you have been ministering to Moses, even in his discouragement. We know, Lord, that Moses is not perfect. We know that he struggles in many ways. He is, Lord, he's um, afraid. He's uncertain about his gifts. he's, um, he's, He's fearful. And Lord, we relate to all those things. And yet, Lord, you didn't, you didn't abandon him. You don't abandon us. But Lord, you work with us, you, you, you mold us, and you shape us, and you're patient with us. But Lord, help us not to be passive in our discouragement, 
but as your children to be active, to, to, to obey, to, to listen, to seek, to, to pray, to study, to dwell, and to meditate. And Lord, to believe. And Lord, as, as a body, especially right now in this season, there's probably more uh, feelings of discouragement and, and questions because of the things that are out of our control. Lord, help us to find our strength in you and help us, Lord, as the body of Christ to, to encourage one another. And, and Lord, this is one of the reasons why you love the church getting together so that we can encourage one another daily as we meet. Oh, Lord, we need encouragement. And Lord, that encouragement ultimately is rooted in you. So Lord, help us to find that strength where it truly comes from. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for our friends around the world. Help us, Lord, to keep serving you faithfully, glorifying your name, doing your will, as we seek to live our lives now in these strange times, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, friends, it's been good to be with you today. You're loved, you're prayed for, you're appreciated, and uh, let's do our best to keep serving the Lord as he gives us opportunity. Have a wonderful day. God bless.